Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Uh, As Pastor Sam will be away for two weeks, uh, I have the unenviable task of preaching. Uh, someone suggested it's pick on the, the younger guy on staff. Uh, I have been told I was young for a while, but that's okay. Uh, so we are simply continuing our series in John. And last week, Pastor Sam spoke about Jesus being the good shepherd. One particular challenge as you and I read from the English is there are words that are in the original that you can translate in different ways, or it may require several words to translate a single word, and the New Testament is originally written in Greek. And here, the use of the word good, and that's how he describes himself, I am the good shepherd, not just I am a shepherd. He is certainly a shepherd. There are lots of shepherds in our lives. We may not necessarily use that word, but there are people who will care for us, I know it may be funny, but you can look at your parents and whether you like the manner in which they do it, they are shepherds Um, and people who take on that sort of role, who will lead you, claim to protect you, or at least endeavor to do it in the way they think is best. It may not necessarily be. And in the Greek, there are two words actually that can be translated good in Mark chapter 10. If you're familiar with it, it's the story of the rich young ruler who addresses Jesus as good teacher, good rabbi. And the first thing Jesus says in response to his questions is, why do you call me good? And that comes from a Greek word that is in reference to someone being morally good uh, about their ethics and the quality uh, of their behavior, simply put. But The word good here that Jesus uses is not that word, but it's a word that means excellent. And it's intended so that we can have in our minds um, the desire to compare. What sort of shepherd is Jesus and is he any better? And I think it's okay If at first we're going to compare him with the Pharisees, certainly, because that's in the story and the context. But like I said earlier, there are a lot of different things and people that make a lot of claims for you 
we are all led by something, whether that thing or that person is actually active in our lives leading us, we may feel attracted or we may gravitate towards. In the previous passage, Jesus addressing the Pharisees, he uses some pretty strong and offensive words to describe who they are. He calls them thieves. And I don't need to explain that very much at all, actually. He calls them robbers. He calls them strangers. And in case there was any debate, he says their sole intention, these Pharisees, and they're standing right there, these Pharisees, their intention is to steal, kill, and destroy. And although it's not today's purpose for this message, I think a proper biblical case can be made that anything apart from Christ does the same thing. Now, it may not be intentional. So there are times where, and I, I confess, I'm a very sarcastic person. Uh, so if that scares you, I understand if you don't want to get to know me. Uh, so I'm a very sarcastic person, and that can get you into a lot of trouble. And sometimes my wife wonderfully will tell me, that was really mean. You shouldn't have said that. And I will say, I know. Because it was intended to be mean. So there are times where you intend something. And, but I don't think that's the category of the Pharisees. There are other times where you maybe mean, you're like, really? I, I didn't think it was. I didn't mean to be. And then you chase after that person apologizing. You don't mean to be scary, but you just may have that look. You may desire to be nice, but it didn't quite come across that way. And I actually believe, to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think the Pharisees intended to be good. I think they intended to be good even in the Mark 10 sense. I think they intended to care and to lead in a loving manner the people of Israel. But Jesus is saying, you're not. You're just not doing it. So the good thing for them in some roundabout way is that he's actually calling them out to point them in the right direction. And in order for someone to get out of their sin, they've got to be called out on it. And that's the only way we come to conviction, turn from our ways and cling to what is actually right. In verse 10, Jesus tells us what makes him good. Uh, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So whereas the Pharisees want to take and completely consume for their own purposes, their own selfish desires, Again, giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they didn't intend it this way. They thought they were actually serving God and for the greater purpose of the people of God. But Jesus says, I'm very different. Not just different and, you know, you take your pick and it's arbitrary, but I'm better. Why am I better? Because I came so that you may have life abundantly. Now, if we are familiar with in the theology of the Gospel of John, Jesus is not intending that you're going to live longer on the earth. 
In fact, sometimes I would think that those who followed the Lord tended to get the shorter end of the stick in life. That's not an educated uh, conclusion or there are no statistics towards that. It's possible. Um, But that's all in accordance with God's wisdom and his sovereignty. But regardless, what God intends to speak through Christ here is that the life I give you is eternal life. In a previous story where he, Jesus meets with the Samaritan woman at the well, he says that there is this well that I can offer you, this water that springs eternally. It never will end. And she's just confused. It's like, if this is true, that's what I want. Who wants or who will choose the option that is terminal over the option that is eternal. You want that which lasts longest or gives you the best. This is an abundance of life. Again, it's not meant to say to simply more. It is endless. I love the fact that the Bible actually, it used to frustrate me for a while, but then I turned my ways and I used to, I used to be really frustrated with the fact that the Bible didn't speak much about heaven. What are we going to eat? Are we going to do this and that? And are we going to see this? Are we going to be clothed or not? And are we, you know, all this stuff. But I've come, at least for me, to accept and to appreciate the fact that there are few details. And I think, I can't say conclusively, I think God did that intentionally for this purpose so that you and I would run wild with our imagination. We have tasted so much of what is good in this world. We can imagine, like, you, if you love eating, we would say silly things like, I could eat this every day, every meal. You would never get that opportunity, and trust me, you probably don't want it. Because eventually you'd be like, okay, I had enough. But we can possibly imagine And just even get excited at what we come up with in our minds. It it should cause some sort of godly frustration. You can't wrap your, your hands around this idea of eternity. A life that never ends. And I don't think the Bible suggests that life just simply stays, or life just simply stays stagnant for eternity. But I think it gets better, I believe just gets better every day for eternity. Not 10,000 years, which is a long time, but eternity. It's like, what does that mean? First of all, to live forever. And some of us are actually deterred to accept Christ because we don't want to sit in a pew for eternity. And trust me, it's not going to be that. But to have our lives prosper and grow more and more each day, abundantly. That's what he came to do. That's what makes him the better shepherd, the good shepherd. And we're actually supposed to read, I think, verses 10, verse 10 with verse 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So it's not that Jesus simply comes and he's an Amazon delivery man and here it is. 
there is a cost, a necessary cost. If there is another way, as we learned in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you're familiar with that story, there was another way, it would have been the route that Jesus would have gone. God would have permitted it. But the only route for you and I to receive abundant life, again, beyond our imagination, is by him laying down his life. He must give up that life. He is the well, and he has to give it to us. Referring back to the story of the Good Samaritan, or not Good Samaritan, this woman at the well, it's interesting that Jesus is wanting to teach this woman, I'm that well that springs forever, never going to go empty nor dry. But then if you fast forward in the very Gospel of John, when Jesus is on the cross, John throws this little detail that if you think twice, at least for me, it seems really odd, almost unnecessary where John tells us that at one point while Jesus is hanging there, bleeding and suffering, listening to people laugh and mock him, praying to God with all of his might, God, why have you forsaken me? He bothers to take a moment and say, I'm thirsty. What? What does that have to do with anything? You're about to die. Why would you want something to drink? And he says that, I believe because it powerfully shows that this well emptied himself so that you and I would thirst no more. And we can keep drinking, not because we've grown thirsty, but because it tastes good and it's refreshing. He had to give up his life so that we could have it abundantly. And that's not going to be found anywhere. The best that any of us can conjure up apart from Christ is a better life here, whatever that means, whether it's actually a better life. You can define that life, whether it's a better life financially, a better life physically, health-wise, relationally, psychologically, whatever. But it's not going to talk about eternity. But yet Jesus offers that. In verses 12 to 13, he says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. This hired hand only in the end cares about him or herself. That's it. These Pharisees in the end, again, and we can be so selfish and not even realize it, right? I know I have, and it's not the end of it. There'll be many more episodes where I'll be selfish, and I thought I was being really generous. Selfish because I wanted to look like the good, generous guy, whatever it may be. And these hired hands, in the end, know that's not for me because it takes from me. It requires of me something that I don't want to give. I'm not willing to give up. In 1995, well... Let me back up a bit. So many of you know I'm an idolatrous Philadelphia Eagles fan. Um, I confess. And it has been painful to watch the 49ers. I won't even sugarcoat it or pretend to see them thrive. In 1995, was, that was the last year the Niners won the Super Bowl. And don't worry, if you're, not an, if you're not into athletics, it'll be, 
it's not totally about X's and O's. 1995, they won their last Super Bowl. After they won the Super Bowl, one of their top players was, um, he left the Niners and he signed with the Philadelphia Eagles. And maybe this is the origin of my Niners, um, I don't want to call it hate, but it's something. Um, and his name was Ricky Waters. And some of you may be familiar, some of you older folks may be. Uh, and on September the 3rd, Ricky ran a route, the slant route down the middle. Randall Cunningham, our quarterback, threw him a perfect pass. Now, if all were to have gone well in, as planned, he would have caught it, but he would have been hit hard by the opposing linebacker. It would have hurt. And so he alligator-armed it, which means he kind of, he didn't catch it. And he just let the ball go through. And so the media asked him why. And his famous quote was, for who, for what? Now, if you say that in Philadelphia, you might as well just run and catch the next flight out because your life is over. For who, for what? And honestly, from his perspective, why? Why would I catch that ball and get hit hard for what? He already got paid. Money was guaranteed. For who, for what? And the hired hands eventually, these Pharisees, are saying, for who, for what? For you? No, I don't think so. If anything, because I'm more important than you. Sheep are dispensable, replaceable, not me. I'm a Pharisee. But again, in a noble, seemingly noble sense, they're thinking, because God put me here. God put me here to lead the people. And God has done that throughout biblical history. In the very beginning, he would send people, and there were prophets, there were priests that he sent, judges and kings that he sent. You should take the time to read 2 Kings or 2 Chronicles. And there's one line that repeats itself. It was, and they sinned, referring to the kings. And they sinned, and they sinned. And eventually, the line ended. So now the next king that we await is really the one that has already been crowned in Jesus, who comes from the line of David. But for who, for what, it, for them, it it wasn't worth it. It's really about me. And when I see a wolf coming. I know it's going to happen. I played in my mind. That wolf is going to come after me. So I scramble, even though I know it's going to ensue later, that by running, there's no protection for the sheep. They will be taken and snatched, killed. But the better shepherd lays down his life. In Matthew 23, 25, Jesus and his seven woes to the Pharisees, one of them was, you Pharisees are greedy and self-indulgent. And Jesus is here showing them that God's purpose in sending all these shepherds, prophets, priests, judges, kings, was to show them that not that you should trust in these people ultimately with your lives, Yes, you should obey them because I sent them to lead you. But ultimately, I'm going to send someone better. Actually, to kind of digress or to take a sidestep here, our response to this passage isn't to show our love to people. So as a parent, my job, my responsibility, my calling from the Lord isn't to show my children how much I love them. Oh, don't get me wrong. It would be great for my ego 
if my children say, Dad, no one loved me more than you. But that's not the point. As a Christian father, as someone who God has placed and given three children, and for me and my wife, it is to show them the better parent, the better shepherd, and that I was just simply an instrument that communicated and exercised his love and his care to you. And at least for me, that's helpful sometimes because I'll see Jesus wants this and I want that and his is far better for my kids or for my family or for the stranger or for this person, whoever it may be. We're here to show the greater, the better shepherd. But this shepherd also is better not only because he lays down his life, but he knows us and we are known by him. In fact, it doesn't even make any reference to how much theology you may know. I'm not better than you because I may know more theology than most of you. Actually, sometimes that's an occupational hazard because it makes you really arrogant and think that you're closer to Jesus when you're really not. The shepherd knows us. I was at uh, the University of Berkeley for a pastoral panel last week, and I appreciate those who prayed for us. And one question that was asked was in regards to evangelism and um, what is the greatest challenge to evangelism? And my response was, I think we fear evangelism because we put too much trust in ourselves. And when you do that, all of a sudden you come to the conclusion, I don't know everything. I don't have the answers. And after that, I said, if you sincerely, truly believe that you know Jesus to be your Savior, you know enough. There is no situation of evangelism where you cannot share and proclaim the gospel. None. doesn't matter. You know enough. Wonderfully, regardless of where you may be today, not only do you, if you're, a, if you're a follower, believer of Christ, you follow the Lord, you know him. He is your father. Christ is your savior. The Holy Spirit is yours, that they know you. The good shepherd knows you. And that knowledge never wanes. It's not exercised and activated on and all. He knows you better than you know yourself. In fact, when Paul says to the Romans that there are going to be times where you may be in so much pain and suffering that when you go to him in prayer, you're just going to moan and groan and you won't even know exactly what it is you desire or need, God is going to know because he knows us. In fact, our knowledge of ourselves is convoluted. It's inconsistent. We're told by scripture that our own hearts deceive us. We don't even know what we need or want often. But this shepherd knows you. And this shepherd being good, the better shepherd, who is not only willing, but prophetically this is telling us not theoretically, the extent he's willing to go as a good shepherd, but what he would do 
to fulfill the calling of being that good shepherd by laying his life on the cross, he knows you. And even though he sees all the filth and sin within me, he's not going to claim to not know me. When we think of Jesus interceding to the Father, what do you think lies at the center of that? He's going to be saying, Father, we know him. Yeah, he's struggling. Yeah, he's doubting. Yeah, he's wandered. Yeah, he's deep in that sin. Yeah, he's being challenged by temptations in this world. But we know him because, Father, I died for him. In verse 3, to go back in this chapter, it says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them. There's that familiarity with him. It's not necessarily the voice, but from whom that voice comes. It's the good shepherd's voice. Verse 5, it reads, A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Sheep of the good shepherd know when he speaks. He equates that with his knowledge, this knowing relationship with his own with the Father. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And this knowledge, it's, it's kind of hard for us to understand again in English. It, it doesn't serve us well. Knowledge in the Bible theologically is far deeper than what you and I typically understand it to be. If you go all the way back to Genesis, the first time they use the word know, it's in reference to Adam knowing his wife. Now, is that just God trying to be PG? Or is that God really saying there's something much deeper out there in relationship that I offer? Far deeper than just simply being acquainted or knowing someone by name or having spent a lot of time together. There's something almost akin to the intimacy found in a sexual relationship between a husband and wife. That's how deep God knows you. And deep down inside, though we have so many competing voices in this world, and even in our own minds and hearts, we know the Good Shepherd's voice. There was a study that was done, I believe it was in 2006, by a Stanford neurologist and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Dr. Menon. And he did a neurological study on children's brains, infants' brains, and how they responded to their mother's voices. And some of you parents will know, you know when it's your kid who's crying. Now, it's been a while since my kids cried, but um, I can recall, maybe not me, but I can recall even there's a whole nursery of children, if it was our child, and typically it was our daughter, but if it was our child that cried, my wife would know, that's, that's Emily. We wouldn't have to check or confirm. We knew it was our child. We knew the voice. So in this study, he had a bunch of women who were uh, obviously not 
the mother of the child and one person who was, and, and they would have each of the women speak nonsensical words, gibberish. And whenever the child heard his or her own mother's voice, it activated so many more areas in the brain than when they heard just any old woman's voice. In fact, 90, there was 97% accuracy in the mother's voice recognition from the infant. Not only 97, that's pretty high. For God, it's 100. He knows us. And deep down inside, again, and part of the struggle in the Christian journey is to block out and to distinguish the false voices. Just as in the New Testament, we see so often the warning, be able to determine the false prophets from the good ones. We know the Good Shepherd's voice. If it doesn't elevate the name of the Lord, if it doesn't pronounce and remind us of what Christ has done, his life laid down for us to receive life abundantly, it's not his voice. If it's for our own good, temporary, of temporary benefit, and only that, it's not his voice. We could put it to the gospel test. But thirdly, what Jesus says here and kind of does a slight left turn in verse 16, he says the good shepherd is still at work and he's still calling. Verse 16 and 17, it says, or just 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. And what he's referring to is that very soon, Jesus is going to die, and then he's going to be resurrected, and then he's going to ascend back to heaven, and then Acts is going to come, and then the Holy Spirit will arrive at Pentecost, and that signals now that the gospel is going to go forth to the Gentiles. The gospel, of God, according to God's plan, was originally first intended for the Jews, then to the Gentiles. It's not of ethnic significance. In the Old Testament, simply he chose a people and said, these are my people and the others are not my people. That's really, it has nothing to do with ethnicity. And in the end, he to denounce and to put the rest, any claims or charges that God is racist, he says, let's send the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul becomes the great missionary to the Gentiles. And that's what he's talking about. Saying that this truth about who I am and what I've come to do it's going to go out there. And you and I, we contribute to that in a small yet great way by sharing that gospel with our children, our spouses, our neighbors, strangers, whoever. Every opportunity is an opportunity to share the gospel. I was so encouraged. Um, some of you I know um, are familiar with Jack Miller. His, his wife is actually still living. She's 99 and her prayer request as she was returning back to London to the mission field was that God would give her an opportunity to share the gospel on the plane. 99, airplane to London. I'm thinking, five hours, what movies are they playing? Every opportunity is an opportunity to share about the better shepherd. Let's skip down to 
19 and 21, where it says, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who was oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, I can't tell you what's going on in the hearts of those who looked at Jesus and said, clearly he's from God. This isn't bad. It's good because he came here and he's doing good stuff because blindness is not good. Or maybe to give them a little more benefit, maybe they thought to themselves, you know what, I remember reading or listening to the scriptures being read about the Old Testament prophecies that the coming Messiah would open blinded eyes and heal the sick and raise the dead. Maybe that's him. But even that, was a, it's a little gray. And what Jesus does is he brings it to greater, greater clarity by adding verses 17 to 18, he says, for this very reason. So he lumps all the healing, all the miracles, which were clues that this guy's the Messiah. Pharisees didn't catch it, which is really strange. But anyone who read the Old Testament said, the signs are all these supernatural things that he's going to accomplish. Jesus is doing them. And yet the Pharisees say he's from, the, he's got a demon in him. And the Old Testament is saying, no, no, he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, let's wrap all that together. What this really means is, verse 17, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Those miracles were simply there to tell you that I'm the one who's going to die for you. I'm the one who can, is willing to lay down his life so that you can have life abundantly. No one else can do this, only the Messiah, and I'm that person. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And Jesus willingly, obediently, joyfully gave up his life for you and for me. That is the voice of Jesus whenever God speaks to you in everything when I'm interacting with my wife, when I'm in a fight with somebody, when I get cut off or trying to change the lane, when I feel robbed and gypped, when I feel someone has disrespected me, and whatever these are, it's not how much theology I may know, but how it refracts through that simple truth. Jesus offered his life, gave it up for me. Then it leads me to humility, it leads me to say that that's not the victory I desire, but the victory is Christ and is mine as well. That it's not this life that I must place all my eggs into, but the life that is already mine and nobody can snatch from me. A life that will never end, never grow old, never wane, never weaken, but a life that will thrive and prosper in eternity with God. This is your shepherd. And I hope that for some of you who are being led this way, that way, by different people, different voices, different organizations, ideologies, that you see Christ, who is far, far better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful you would send a shepherd because we are lost like sheep who wander, 
You sent the shepherd who would not only lead us as down the way, the truth, and life, but a shepherd who would care for us and, yes, die for us. And his job isn't over. He knows it, and he is faithful to it. And he still cares for us today. His voice is gentle. His voice is soothing. It's loving. And we thank you that that voice never stops speaking to us. Holy Spirit, may you continue to remind us of who it is that we follow. We thank you for his willingness to die on that cross for us, to do what no man could. And even if they were to have sacrificed, what good would that have done? But the one who could offer us eternal life has, yes, in the most painful way, but was it not his delight and to the glory of the Father. As we come to this table, Lord, would you bless us, nourish us, remind us of all that Christ has done, who he is to us, all the promises that are ours in him. For it's in his name we pray, amen. So God gives us wonderfully many ways in which we can be reminded of who he is. Because as we considered earlier, there are a lot of competing voices. Sometimes that own voice can come from your own lips, from Christians even, churches, unfortunately. Um, but this is a wonderful way to be reminded of what Jesus has done. To kind of set everything aside block everything out and to remember Jesus is really about the abundant life that he gives me and to remember the cost that it took. And so on the night when he was betrayed, think about that. With all that was going on, him being mindful that someone at his table is about to sell him out, that in a few hours he will be mocked he'll be questioned by those he had created for his glory hated upon denied and then after that to be crucified and then to sit in a tomb for three days with all that going on he said let's eat but he knew the only way to eat and to be fulfilled is to break his body and so on the night when he was betrayed he took bread he said this is my body which is for you. And he broke and he said, do this in remembrance of me, to remember him. And again, we need that reminder. I know I do. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup of the new covenant saying, this cup is filled with my blood. Do this with thanksgiving in remembrance of me. If you are someone who has sincerely place your faith in the Lord. He is your good shepherd. You follow him. And yes, we all wander. That's why he's there. But if he is your good shepherd, he knows you, you know him. You know him to be the son of God who came, took on flesh, died on the cross, offered eternal life, dwells in you in his spirit. This table's for you. And you are invited to come and eat. We have five tables set up, two in the pack, two at the sides, and one here up front. So in a moment, I'm going to say a quick prayer, then invite you to come at your time. Take a piece of bread, a cup, 
return back to your seats, and then as the one body of Christ, we'll eat and drink together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for feeding us, that you feed our souls with your word, and even through this food, you remind us of the grace that is ours in abundance, ours poured out on the cross, and even fresh and new each and every morning. Father, wherever we are, whatever we are involved in, whatever challenges we may have to endure, we know that that grace is sufficient. And so we plead for it. Uh, we thank you for it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.